0: That's
1: Good morning. He is risen. He is risen today, we, like every Sunday, we celebrate Christ uh, rising from the dead, and we're very thankful to God for everything He has done for us. And because He lives, we shall live also. And so uh, I'm very happy for that, and uh, we celebrate that today and every Sunday. For announcements, uh, we have one a reminder that we have a lending library. And there's a lot of new titles there today. Uh, Some titles that you might like, if you have a little one, is Bible History ABCs. I always like children's books because they're easy for my my brain. Uh, So that's a good one. There's also Thriving at College. There's Defending Your Faith by R.C. Sproul. And a brand new copy of Lest We Forget, which is a history of the OPC, so if you're newer to the OPC, uh, this is a book you might want to uh, read and learn more about our denominations our, uh, denomination, and where we uh, come from. And now, um, let us uh, prepare our hearts to worship the Triune God. So let us spend some time doing that.
2: Beloved church family, please stand. Never hurts to say it twice. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who calls us to worship with the language of Psalm 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. If you would, please take your psalter, hymnal in hand. And we're going to continue what we've begun singing last week. Actually, we're not. We're going to go straight to number 363, Jesus Christ is risen today. God in heaven, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection, and we thank you for the event of the resurrection. Where, O Lord, would we be without that hope and without that event in history? And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are grateful that even now you're pleased to call us into your presence, and in doing so, to remember that you call us out of the world to leave earthly cares and burdens behind, and by faith to ascend the hill of the Lord. And who shall abide in the presence of God but he who has clean hands, and a pure heart, who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. So help us now to engage heavenly business, help us to rest in the finished work of our Savior, and help us to rejoice in the hope of the resurrection. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Please be seated. If you will, turn to the very back of your hymnal. There are a handful of responsive readings that have been attached to the very back of the book. Pages 5 and 6 contain our reading this morning. I'll read as the leader. Please read together out loud as God's people. This is God's word from his Ten Commandments with responsive interaction. You shall have no other gods before me. For from him and through him and to him are all things... To Him be the glory forever. You shall not make for yourself an idol. In Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses His name.
1: Let us continually
2: offer to God a sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips that contents his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. You shall not murder. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You shall not commit adultery. You were not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You shall not steal. He who has been stealing must steal no longer. Must work doing something useful with his hands, so that he may have something to share with those in need. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. As we hear and echo out loud together God's word, let us spend a moment now and offer to him our prayer of confession. Lord, we confess that there is something surgical about your word. It is very precise, and it comes at us from a number of different angles. It pierces the heart and it surgically works upon us in such a way that we become mindful of our sinful thoughts, words, and deeds. And each one of us knows, O Lord, even as we ever so briefly look at the week behind us, that there are many ways in which we have sinned against you. And the great marvel to us is that even though you are holy and infinitely holy, 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 you are also full of steadfast love, mercy, and forgiveness. If you were to hold a single one of our sins against us, O Lord, which of us could stand in your presence? The answer is None. And so we thank you that you have held our sins against your only begotten Son and that he was willing to hold them in our place at the cross. How much more do we thank you that he has triumphed over not only sin, but even death as he was raised from the dead gloriously and even now sits at the right hand of the Father. So Lord, we offer you not simply our prayer of confession. We offer you our hearts wholly and completely. And we pray that more and more you would guide us in that way of peace peace in all of those ways of righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God hears our prayers, he hears our praise, but he wants us to hear his word of assurance and pardon. And so this morning, if you, beloved, by God's grace, have come to Christ Jesus uh, with genuine and lively faith, hear then these words of assurance from Romans chapter 10. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, Amen. We're going to sing uh, for what is many for many of us just a cherished hymn, number three fifty one, "How Deep the Father's Love for Us." Think particularly about the sending of the Son as we sing it. And if you will, please rise while we do so. Be seated. If you will, keep your hymnal in hand. Turn to the very back to page 949. One simple question and answer regarding what we believe concerning the resurrection. I'll read the question. Please read the answer together. What are we to believe concerning the resurrection? We are to believe that at the last day shall be a general resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust, when they are then found alive, shall in a moment be changed, and the selfsame bodies of the dead, which were laid in the grave, being then again united to their souls forever, shall be raised up by the power of Christ. The bodies of the just, by the Spirit of Christ, and by virtue of his resurrection as their head, shall be raised in power, spiritual, incorruptible, and made like to his glorious body, and the bodies of the wicked, shall be raised up in dishonor by him as an offended judge. Will you help me pray? Let's do that now. Great God in heaven, we acknowledge that the body is a remarkable thing. Some of us in this room likely spend far too much time paying attention to our bodies, studying them Rather carefully in the mirror, training and disciplining them, almost at times in an idolatrous way, in many ways fixed on our appearance. And uh, on the other spectrum, Lord, there are some of us who neglect our bodies, failing to care for them in the way that we ought, often uh, neglecting them in one fashion or another. And so, Lord, we recognize these categories and therefore we marvel that you are a God who has great regard for our bodies, so much so that Jesus came in the world, not simply in the form of a spirit, but in a body, that he was raised from the dead, not simply in his spirit, but with his body. And as we were just reminded from our larger catechism, that at the end of the age, not only shall our spirits be raised, but likewise our bodies, and ever we shall dwell in the presence of the Lord embodied." And we shall see the face of the one who died and rose again on our behalf, and the body of Christ shall be one in him. And so, Lord, we look forward to that day, but we pray to you on this day, recognizing that while we are yet in these bodies, there's much about us and much about this world that is simply not quite right. And we feel the sting of it, O Lord, in so many ways. As we look at ourselves, at our heart of hearts in the mirror, even there, too, we find things that are decaying and are affected by sin. As we contemplate uh, the estate of our families and even uh, the world around us, we see so much brokenness and at times, Lord, so much pain. And so, Lord, what is our hope but the resurrection? And we ask that because of the resurrection, that more and more you'd be pleased to conform us into the image of Christ, and that you help us to remember that the very same Spirit that raised him from the dead is also the Spirit that dwells within us, not only working in us faith and justification, but also adoption, sanctification, and finally glory. And so, Lord, help us to learn more and more to walk by faith and not by, sp- not by sight. To live according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Help us to recognize that while we are in the world, we are not of the world, and that one day we will be transferred out of this world. Help us to live as a pilgrim people, whether young or old, acknowledging that all that we have comes from your generous hand, and even those things that you've been pleased to withhold, that too you have chosen wisely in doing so. Help us to recognize uh, that a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, and that is Lord's Day by Lord's Day. Resurrection day by resurrection day, your people gather. Help us, Lord, to fix our eyes upon Christ. Help us to learn to stand for the things that he would have us to stand for, to love what he loves and to hate what he hates, to recognize that in this world, even as Jesus said, we will have persecution and tribulation, but we can take heart because Jesus has already overcome the world. We pray that you put your hand of blessing upon us as we exercise stewardship of our time, our talent, and our treasure. We pray for those who are single and for those who are married, for those who have children and those uh, who do not and might even be empty nesters. And we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to be faithful in all things, even faithful in small things, that we might show ourselves worthy to be entrusted with even more. We ask your hand of protection upon us and even particular upon our families that we might grow together in grace and love, that love would cover a multitude of sins, that the very same forgiveness that we so freely receive in Christ would help us in our hearts to be eager to extend it to others. We pray, Lord, that our children would walk in the truth and that... In many years to come, even decades to come, they would continue to do so. And for those who have strayed or might be tempted to stray, we pray, Lord, that you would turn their hearts back sweetly and savingly unto yourself. We thank you that as a body we're able to gather, but we're mindful of the fact uh, that there are some today who would love to be here and cannot. Uh, for some, it's a punctuated moment. They woke up not feeling well, or they are sick, or they are injured. But for others, oh Lord, uh, they are categorically defined as shut-ins. Those who are not able to come out of their homes without help. Those who are not able to come and sit through a worship service, they are, they are physically incapable. And yet, Lord, you are able... You are able to envelop them by your spirit. You are able to comfort and encourage their hearts even now. We pray that you would do that. We think not simply of those whose bodies are broken, uh, but even those who are troubled in their minds. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would relieve them uh, from stress and oppression. We ask, Lord, that you would deliver them from the evil thoughts that might bind them. And that you would set them free in such a way that they would walk in the freedom that belongs to the sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. We ask, Lord, as a church family that you'd help us to build up one another, to esteem one another as more important than ourselves, to fulfill the law of Christ, which is a law of love. And that you'd help us, Lord, to so walk in love that when people outside the church look upon us, they would see not simply what we stand for in terms of our convictions, but the way in which we embody the truth that we profess. And so, Lord, help us to walk well and to do so together. Help us, O Lord, to encourage one another, and that all the more as we see the final day approaching. Thank you for those who labor in little ways, like in our nursery or later teaching our young ones or even uh, adult classes in Sunday school. Thank you for the ministry, not only of ordained servants, but lay people, uh, without which, O Lord, the ministry of the church could not go on. Thank you, Lord, for those whom you've gifted with the ability and talent to play music well. And, uh, Lord, how our hearts rejoice when we sing together and even more so when we are accompanied by beautiful sounds, sounds that you have made and inspired even in your word. We pray, Father, uh, for the ministry of our deacons and our elders. And we ask, uh, Lord, that you would uphold, encourage and strengthen these brothers, protect their families, help them to know that they are loved and cherished by the church. Bless those who ministry and labor in the word. Not simply those who are preaching this day or teaching uh, this day, but those among us who are already called and ordained to gospel ministry and those who aspire to it. Bless the young men and young women in our midst who desire to serve you in one fashion and help us as a church to be good stewards of them. Thank you, Lord, for those that serve in the chaplaincy. And we do pray that you bless their families and likewise those who are in the military and other forms of armed services. Lord, in all these things, we recognize uh, that we have a, a stewardship if we were not only servants, we were caring for one another as servants to one another. Lord, help us to do that well. We pray, Lord, that through the ministry of our church, you would turn many from darkness to light, from unbelief to saving faith that the church would be exactly what Jesus says it is, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so we pray, Lord, for gospel opportunities. We pray for unsaved family members and friends and co-workers. We pray for those that meet us along the way and that we're able to greet even as we go to the places where we recreate and other things. And we simply ask, Lord, that you would help us to not only walk in the truth, but to share that truth with those who have been deceived by the great lie of the evil one. Lord, we pray not simply for ourselves. We pray for our sister churches around our presbytery and our denomination. Uh, we uphold, Lord, the, the OPC and lift her up in your sight. But we also recognize that this little corner of Christ's vineyard uh, has many faithful sisters, many faithful sister denominations, and we lift them up to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be reformed and ever reforming. We pray especially for the persecuted church, for we know, Lord, that this very day around the world, the blood of the martyrs will be spilled. But as a great father of the faith well said in the past, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the beautiful thing about the church is that because it has a resurrected Lord, even as we too should fall to the ground and perish, the gospel continues to bear abounding fruit. And so, Lord, we pray that that fruit would continue to grow uh, from sea to shining, shining sea, every nation, tribe and tongue. For our nation, O Lord, we ask that you would turn the hearts of kings and governors and local leaders. We pray, Lord, for repentance where repentance is needed. We pray that you'd preserve those who walk in righteousness and do according to your will and your ways. And we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to never become so content here in this world in an earthly citizenship that we cease to long for heaven and the things that are above and yet to come. For our true home is with you. And here in this world, we bear the cross, but how eager we are to be relieved of it and to take up our crowns. And so, Lord, we pray for the hastening of that day when we shall see your face in beauty and glory, when no longer shall we close our eyes to best see you, but then we shall see you face to face. So come quickly, Lord Jesus, but until you do, help us to continue to remember the resurrection and to abound in its fruit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, now we're going to sing the rest of Psalm 22a, and then I'm going to preach on it. So if you would, remain seated. We'll sing Psalm 22a, verses 6 through 11. We sang the first half last week, in case you weren't here and were wondering what's going on. song, song, well composed and well sung. I know it's felt like a lot to do six verses all at once, but we didn't do all 11 all at once. But we're going to turn to that psalm now in your Bible. So if you would, please turn to Psalm 22 and to its companion text, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 quotes... Psalm 22, very interestingly, if you would please stand together. We're going to give both of them our attention for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edges stored. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of the living God endures forever. So let's strive this morning to hear and heed God's word faithfully together. Psalm 22, beginning at verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And now, briefly, to Hebrews chapter 2. At verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Thus far, the word of the living God. Please pray with me. We stand now before you, O Lord, but in our hearts we are small and humble. We ask, Lord, that you might be pleased to bless the reading and especially the preaching of your word. In spite of the frailties that are so obvious of your servant who was sent and we who you gather to listen, we pray that Christ would be honored and that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would receive glory for the hope of the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I'd like to begin by asking a maybe strange question as we think about the resurrection this morning. And the question I want to ask is, who is the best singer in heaven? I don't need to hear your answer out loud, whether you're right or wrong, but it's a curious question. Who is the best singer in heaven? Well, as we begin to think about the resurrection, one of the things that we should notice is uh, something said elsewhere in another psalm. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. It is only the living who praise the Lord. This morning, it's a real joy and privilege for me to be able to preach on the hope and comfort of the resurrection Yesterday, in our men's breakfast study, we were reading through J. Gresham Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. And one of the the great uh, points that he makes, that we would do well to heed also, is that Christianity is an event-centered religion. Christianity is an event-centered religion. In other words, uh, the centerpiece of Christianity is not morality. You can't reduce it to a list of rules. But nor is it sentimentality, just a feeling evoked when one thinks certain things. The center of Christianity is actually what we're talking about today. It is the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and his triumph over sin and death. And so we're going to look at that through the three points that you have now uh, in your outline. We'll follow them along that way. The prayer of the Savior. The hope of the Savior. And then finally we'll look together at the song of the Savior, and answer the question, who is the best singer in heaven? I know you're wondering if it's me, but the answer is no. You weren't wondering that, were you? So let's take... Psalm 22, first by way of the prayer of the Savior. If you were here last week, you noticed that this sermon and last sermon are two sides of the same coin. Last week we did the first half of Psalm 22, and today we finish it. But as I mentioned last week, Psalm 22 is arguably one of the most popular psalms, at least in the New Testament. One of the most Quoted Psalms in the New Testament, and one of the most quoted Psalms by Jesus Christ in particular, as he quotes from Psalm 22 eight times, eight times, particularly in connection with the cross. And the opening verse of the psalm is arguably the most famous of all those quotations My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As one author puts it, Psalm 22 is a psalm of the cross. But in a certain sense, at least to me, that falls a little flat because Psalm 22, while beginning at the cross, it doesn't end there. And that's the beautiful point. It leaves the cross by way of resurrection. But when you think about a psalm, it's helpful for us to remember that psalms, in a certain sense, are sung prayers. It is both a song and a prayer. So that when we sing the psalms, as we just did, we're actually singing not simply out of the songbook of Israel, but also the prayer book of Israel. A psalm is a sung prayer. And this is a song that was sung not only by David, but also by Jesus, and today by us. Therefore, we might say it like this. Psalm 22 is David's psalm. Psalm 22 was Jesus' psalm, and Psalm 22 is our psalm. It touches the heart and expresses not only the cry of the heart, but the prayer and the hope of life on the other side of death. It begins with that awful question, why have you forsaken me? But if you go to the end of the psalm, verse 31, it finishes almost like this. It is finished, or in the precise language of the text, He has done it. Why have you forsaken me? It is finished. That's the bookend of Psalm 22. Uh, I mentioned last week also that there are three clear structures, or three clear uh, divisions in the psalm. Verses 1 through 18 are a lament. Verses 19 through 21 are a plea for help. And then finally, verses 22 through the end of the chapter are the psalmist's praise for what God So what is it then that the psalmist is praying for? What is his plea that he expresses in verse 19? Well, in a very simple way, the psalmist is saying, Dear God, come and save me. I'm on the brink of death, and you are my only hope. The psalmist cries to God because no one else can help, and no one else will help. That all by itself summarizes one of the great hopes that the Christian has uh, in terms of our comfort and our strength, even in the very darkest moments of life, is that God is actually near us. And so that's why the question is so important and yet painful. Why have you forsaken me? But here, at verse 19, it is the nearness of God that the psalmist begins to embrace and understand. The sense that God would be far off, would be his worst nightmare, but if God should draw near, it would be like the light of day. Verse 20, in many ways, embodies this nightmare. As the psalmist says, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. My enemies have come for me. They are armed with sword. He then takes up a metaphor. He describes them in an unflattering way as animals, as though the wolves of Isengard now encircle him. I'm allowed one Lord of the Rings reference <laughs> every Sunday. But notice what he calls them. Dogs, lions, wild oxen. Remember from last week, uh, he sets this psalm to the tune of the Doe. They are strong, wild, predatorial beasts, apex predators, and I'm a little deer, vulnerable before them. This is the nightmare of the psalmist. But it also exposes, as you think it through with me, uh, that we too travel through those dark places. We too, at times, feel encircled by wild beasts. We too feel that God is far away, and truly it is our worst nightmare. And it raises the question, what do we do? What do you do when God seems far off? And your afflictions are awfully near. Do you cry out to him like the psalmist? Or do you simply try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Do you seek God or try harder? There's a lot of distance between the two. What the psalmist does is not try harder. Nor does he pull himself up by his bootstraps. Rather, he says, God, I'm at the very end of myself, the end of my line. And he prays for deliverance from those who are unclean, ravenous, brutal, and irresistible. That is to say, within himself, he does not find the strength to prevail. But he moves on. In fact, uh, the pace of the psalm is, is rather swift. Verse 21 closes with the salvation that has come. But notice how it puts it in the past tense. Save me from the mouth of the lion. That is a prayer. But then in the second half of that, you have, past tense, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Notice the movement from petition uh, to praise. You have done it. You have saved me. He puts it in the past tense. And even with this, there's something worthy to know. Uh, This is the great transition That leads to the great hope of the psalmist. But it also points out that sometimes uh, the way in which God enters into the story to save is something that we can easily miss if we're not paying attention closely. The point is, God heard his prayer. God entered into his story. God rescued him and saved his life. It even throws in an explanation point. You have saved me. And the expression of gratitude is obvious because God hears, and that leads to the second point, the hope of the Savior. So if the short three verses that we looked at express his prayer, what is his hope? He prays, but then he has a particular hope. Uh, What is that hope? Again, the transition was so fast it almost becomes easy to take for granted, but such is the nature of answered prayer. It's often easy to take for granted. God hears us, but we seldom take time to notice, time to drink in the fact that he does not just sometimes listen. But when does God ever stop listening to our prayers? Is the problem that he stops listening or is the problem that we stop praying? When does he get too busy and say, you know, let's schedule? When does he say, sorry, not today. I've, I've kind of had a long day. And I'm, I'm sort of listened out. He never does that. He always has time. I think about a house full of little kids that are constantly wanting your attention. And and sometimes almost like magpies all talking at the same time. And and those beautiful little voices can become an overwhelming cacophony. And I I don't have the time, the ability, the bandwidth to listen to all of them at once and can even grow a little impatient and frustrated. I'm being a little too honest. But many of you know exactly what I'm talking about and how wonderful it is to know that God's not like that. He always has the time. He always has the bandwidth. He never gets overwhelmed. He never has to say, Stop, I can only hear one of you at a time. He never has to say, huh? He always listens. We always have his full attention. That's just how big he is and uh, how beautiful it is to be his little child. So, like the psalmist, you always have God's attention. But why? Here comes a question. Uh, why is it that God listens? It's not simply a matter of fact that he is able but why? And this is where we really begin to think uh, more precisely about the resurrection. Psalm 22 is not just a plea for God to listen. And in fact, be with me here. It's not even narrowly a plea to be rescued from temporal problems. What Psalm 22 ultimately moves from is the earthly to the heavenly, the temporal to the eternal. Ultimately, Psalm 22 becomes a plea that God would save from death. Impending death is how the psalm starts. It's as though the psalmist is in the depth of despair and slowly sinking down or near the edge of death and being pushed off by animals that are stronger than he, circled by these wild praying animals that are now closing in, or to say it this way, as though he were upon a cross feeling abandoned, feeling as though death is near, asking the question, why? And so here again, the psalmist pleads for his life, and God hears him. But think about it foremost through the lens of David. In David's life, God intervenes. Those wild oxen and dogs and lions that encircle him do not get their way with David. God rescues his little doe. And that's what the rest of the psalm celebrates. God heard and God rescued, and that leads to praise. But eventually, don't miss this, David dies. David was rescued, but David died. The plight of the psalm, however, does not die with David. And that's the beautiful crescendo moving upward. David's use of the psalm gives way to somebody else using the psalm. Someone else will take up the story of the psalmist. Someone else will take up the song of the psalmist. Someone else will take up the plight of the psalmist, being surrounded by the wolves of Isengard, being preyed upon by those that were stronger than he, finding himself stricken, smitten, and afflicted, finding himself at the very edge of death, finding himself at a place where you ask God, why are you too so far from me? And this is why the psalm must give way to the one who again will sing it. It is Jesus, the greater son of David, who will again echo the words of this psalm, quoting it at least eight times from the cross. It is Jesus who, like a faithful song, will sing the songbook of Israel. This was their hymn book. An inspired hymn book sung by the people of God for literally thousands of years. And like a faithful servant, he too will love this word of God, this psalm book, and all that comes with it, with his heart, his soul, his strength, and his might. But unlike David, who could only plead for his own salvation, Jesus pleads not simply for himself, but for others. This is the amazing. Part of this psalm, at least in my mind, is that not only does Jesus take it up for himself, in a certain sense, he takes it up on our behalf. What do we mean by that? The life of his people are bound up in him because he entered this world to bind his life to us. We say it with big words the life of the many are found in the one. The one who came down to do what David could not do, what you and I could not do. And what is that? To keep all the law. David may say elsewhere in the Psalms, how I love your law; is my meditation all the day. But it's the same David who says, oh, wipe away my sins and my transgressions. The one who came to endure what we could not endure. The very death sentence that the law requires and even demands. Perhaps part of the reason why David finds himself in this situation is because of the particular sins that David has particularly committed. And you know that David committed many. And sin came with consequence. And that consequence ultimately is death. Death. But in Jesus, we find not only a keeper of the law and endurer of the death sentence, but one who came to be the first to secure what David never could, and that is not simply longer life, but eternal life. What's the real hope of Psalm 22? That David lives to be 60 instead of 50? 90 rather than 80? That he outruns the wolves, but eventually is taken by the worms? No. The real hope of the psalm is not longer life, but eternal life. And beloved, that is what we're actually celebrating on this day. Not longer life. Eternal life. Today is an incredible day. An exciting day. Some of you put on special colors today. Curious looking things in your hair. When my children came down the stairs, mumbling Lily, way too early again, this morning, you would have thought it was Christmas the way they bolted down the stairs to the point where having to shush them. And the first words out of their mouth were, and I quote, Dad, is it really Easter morning? And my response is, be quiet. (laughs) That's not what I said. I said, it is. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. This is not simply a day, beloved. This is the day. This is the day. The resurrection is rightly the most celebrated day in history, more than Christmas, more than your birthday, more than your wedding day, more than any other day, because this is the day. That Jesus triumphed over sin, and he triumphed over death, and the hope of the psalmist becomes reality. The event of the resurrection triggers resurrection for you and me. It is the day that changed the course of history. The way that we date time. B.C. and Anno Domini. It is the day that sets Christianity apart from any other religion because only in Christianity do you have a resurrected Savior who is knowable, lovable, and who knows and loves his people. This is the day that gives hope to the perishing. We prayed earlier for people that are homesick and some who are shut in. And no matter how old you get, Or how much longer your days might be, longer life isn't your real hope, is it? What is longer life if it simply ends without life? This is the day that gives hope to the perishing, because this is the day That Jesus rose from the dead. And Machen was profoundly right. Christianity truly is an event-centered religion. Our lives are framed by the resurrection. Our worship is framed by the resurrection. Our ethic is framed by the resurrection. Our hope is framed by the resurrection. Our song would be nothing without the resurrection. Take out the resurrection. And what do you actually have to sing about? A dead Savior would be no Savior at all. Songs of longer life, what is that really worth? But when you add the resurrection, all of a sudden it turns beautifully to color. So Christianity is event-centered, not morality, though it clearly has morals or sentiment. It's full of bright emotion and feeling. It is salvation-centered, salvation centered Because God's plan to deal with our sins, the wages of our sin, is the purpose of Jesus coming into the world. And the resurrection is his triumph over all of those things. It is the ultimate answer to David's prayer. It is the ultimate reason for the Christian's hope. And finally, it gives rise to what is the third point of our outline, the song of the Savior. I, I love this point. You will too, not just because it's the last one, but because it raises again that wonderful question who who is the best singer in heaven it's a silly question isn't it but it's a beautiful question don't let go of it too quickly it's essential for us to not simply understand the necessity of the resurrection but the effect We've talked in many ways about the necessity of the resurrection, but what is the effect of it even according to the psalm? Again from Psalm 115, The dead do not praise God, but the living do. And that's exactly what happens in Psalm 22. The living praise God, but in Psalm 22, and this I remember when I first discovered this. There's this wonderful little article written by uh, Ed Clowney in 1954 in the Moody Monthly, entitled "The Singing Savior." It's a delightful article. It completely rocked my world where he makes this wonderful observation, and nearly every other commentary uh, figures this out as well, is that when you look at the way Hebrews 2 takes up Psalm 22, it does something remarkable. In Psalm 22, the psalmist sings because God has saved. The psalmist sings because God delivers him from death, and he goes on to sing in all the ways that we're about to look at. But what's amazing is that in Hebrews 2, Jesus is the one who sings. Jesus is the one who takes up all the expressions of thanksgiving and praise in Psalm 22. And not only does he sing them, but he sings them as though he were in a choir alongside all of his brothers and sisters. Jesus, the object of our song, becomes the one who also sings song in heaven. The singing Savior, who sang not simply the songbook of Israel while he was on earth, the singing Savior who continues to lead the heavenly choir even now gathered around the throne. Jesus, not simply the recipient of worship, but a participant in that song. It is Jesus who will tell of God's name in the midst of the great choir. And I think that is a wonderful thought to imagine. Jesus does not simply, beloved, receive our worship. He leads us in it. He is the great choir master in heaven. Jesus sings, and he is the best of all singers in heaven. If I were to ask the question, uh, who might be a contender for the worst singer in heaven? Well, I could raise my hand. But to imagine that Jesus not only receives our song, but he leads it. He's the great choir master. We are his brothers and sisters. We're in the band, if you will, that sings to God, before God, and with Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus gives thanks to the Father for the resurrection. He sings. He's singing even now. It is not just the living that praise God. Capture this nuance well. It is not just the living that praise God. It is the living Son of God who praises in heaven as well. Verse 22, in the midst of the great kahal or assembly, he will proclaim the name and the work of God. Uh, This is quite a remarkable thought. I will tell every name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And then the rest of the psalm, which I can't do full justice to in one sermon, uh, just gives all these little nuanced ways in which the son sings. As the psalmist sang when God delivered him, how much more does Jesus sing a finer song in heaven for the salvation wrought by God, not simply for longer life, which the psalmist received, but eternal life, which the son receives and then gives. And part of that life, the quality, not simply the quantity, the quality of eternal life is wonderfully embodied in Psalm 22 because it's a life filled with song. Some of you sing really well. Some of you are people I'm very thankful for. (laughs) For your other very strong and redeeming qualities. And maybe you feel that way about me. But to imagine that heaven is full of music. And that Jesus is not simply the object of our worship, the recipient, but the leader in it. How does that make you think about your worship even now? Because Hebrews 12 says, as we gather together for worship... We ascend the hill of the Lord, we enter in to that holy tabernacle where Jesus already there is the choir master and this great choir is gathered from every nation, tribe and tongue and not only are the redeemed there, even the angels take up instrument and voice and sing. And then we too join the band. Already. How much more then? He unpacks this in beautiful language. He describes why it is that he sings going forward. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob. It's a very generational way of thinking about the church. All you offspring of Israel. Why? Because he has not despised you. He has not abhorred you. The affliction of the afflicted. Even while we were cast down and low, he entered into the story and lifted us up. How high? Heavenly high. How saved? Singing saved. Not just a little saved. Singing saved. From you comes my praise. In the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted will not only sing, they're going to eat. A heavenly party full of song. And what kind of party would it be without food? The food of eternity. The bread of life. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live how long? At the end of verse 26. A little bit longer or forever. An eternal song for the people who enjoy eternal life. And then it all even reaches uh, clearly beyond the Savior himself, to the gathering of people from where all the ends of the earth. It takes an evangelistic turn. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. The effect of the resurrection is wonderful because not simply shall the offspring of Jacob sing the song of the Lamb, the song of the great King, but people from every nation, tribe, and tongue shall join that party, shall sing in that choir, Shall be a part of that band. How many of you here are of, of Hebrew descent? Very few. That's how you got here. God, from all eternity past, was planning a choir, a beautiful song that would last for all of eternity in heaven. They're not simply the nations. They are endeared with the language of family. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Why do we call Jesus King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Because he rules. And why does he rule? Because he was raised. He triumphed over every power, every force, every foe, sin, sickness, Satan, and death. That's why he is crowned king. And the resurrection is his coronation. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. I love the fact that it talks about eating twice. Seconds. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who cannot keep himself alive. What you cannot miss in Psalm 22 is the poetic, repetitive echo of resurrection hope. Death, excuse me, let me do it again. Death, life. Death, life. Death, life. life. And that refrain is a way of punctuating that the purpose of the psalm, again, is not simply to thank God for a longer life, but ultimately for eternal life. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. But posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They too shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And in a certain sense, Psalm 22 begins the singing of a song. And David sang it. And his offspring after him sang it. And then Jesus sang it. And his offspring after him sang it. And you who are alive, maybe been around for a few minutes, sang Psalm 22 before some of the people in this room were even alive. And here they are, the family of God, one generation singing it to the next. One generation handing off the hope of the resurrection to the next. And How? By way of resurrection songs and resurrection psalms. The psalm begins with Dave expressing his hope, or excuse me, his fear that God was far. It ends with him saying, it is finished. You might say it like this. Psalm 22 moves from salvation requested to salvation accomplished to salvation applied. It begs a very honest question. Have you found such salvation? And is the song of the resurrection in your heart? Is the hope of the resurrection in your life? If you have come to Jesus through genuine faith and repentance, then the answer is yes. But if not, you have no reason to sing this song. You have no hope for eternal life. And even a long life will give way to eternal death. But those who come by faith are those who are described in the psalm as blessed by the Lord. They shall not only eat, they shall even sing. Even those who are headed to the dust and who here in this room isn't. Some of us feel like we're heading faster than others. But when shall this race be finished? And where shall it be finished for those who cannot keep themselves alive? Death doesn't win. That's why the New Testament can't stop talking about the resurrection. So who is the best singer in heaven? Well, the answer is Jesus. But if Jesus sings, what does that say about our song? How rich and beautiful is it, whether your voice cracks or not, whether we are a finally- Tune choir, or sometimes a little bit off key. If Jesus is pleased not simply to sing, but to lead us into heavenly worship, are there many greater joys for the hope for the church than to sing of the hope of the resurrection? Let's pray. We take time, O Lord, to acknowledge that you did not hand us a systematic theology or even a book narrowly filled with history, but in many ways a story filled with poetry. And as this morning we conclude our study of Psalm 22, we cannot help but take note of the way it begins and the way that it ends. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then with the end, he has done it. It is finished. We thank you that in Jesus we have one who has endured the full weight of our cross, so much so that he quoted this psalm eight times from the cross, and then it was finished. But we also thank you that the story does not end there, as it did not for Jesus, so also it does not for us. So we thank you for the resurrection hope. We thank you for the resurrection event. We thank you for resurrection futures and the fact that one day we too shall be taken up for all eternity into that heavenly choir, our bodies, and therefore our voices perfected. And seeing you, we shall hear you and sing with you as well as to you. That is a joyful thought. And we pray, Lord, that such thoughts would pepper our worship even now that we would think about coming to worship as coming to that place where we sing to Jesus and with Jesus because of all that has been accomplished for us in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Receive our praise, O Lord. We offer it to you in his name. Amen. We're going to sing now number 367, arguably one of the most popular Resurrection tunes, up from the grave he rose. Please stand together as we sing. Seated now as our deacons come for our tithes and offerings. Together, God in heaven, we thank you for all that you've granted to us. Every gift from your hand is a reminder of your steadfast love. And those mercies are new every morning. We pray that all that we have entrusted to you would be used for your honor and glory and even for the good of your church. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Now we'll sing together our doxology, which is 565. Praise ye the Lord, ye hosts above. As you go, this Resurrection Sunday, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be merciful to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. And His people said together, Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Please greet one another.